Hi, and thanks for listening to Ask the Pastors. This is a segment of the West Hills podcast where you have the opportunity to ask your questions and receive biblically grounded, pastorally sensitive answers from our pastoral staff. My name is Brian. I'm your host and pastor of worship, and I'm joined by Will, our lead pastor. Hey, y'all. And that our pastor of Youth and Connections. Hey, everybody. So this week, we're going to be diving a bit deeper into our conversation from two weeks ago regarding the doctrines of Calvinism. That was one of our most listened episodes in this uh, podcast segment. Today, we're going to be addressing the question, diving just a little bit deeper, uh, with the question, what is limited atonement and is it biblical? Pastor Will, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks, Brian. And thanks to all of you who listened to the episode from two weeks ago on Calvinism and sort of a, a even broader summary and flyover of the five uh, doctrines that are considered um, the sort of summary doctrines of the Calvinist um, theological position. And so, as Brian said, we're zooming in on one of those, the L in TULIP. Uh, this week, limited atonement, which is um, typically considered the most uh, controversial um, and maybe least understood of of uh, the five Calvinist doctrines. So um, I thought I'd start with um, uh, just a, a brief summary of limited atonement by Kevin DeYoung from, uh, many of you will know, uh, one of the resources I love most is the Gospel Coalition, some of their articles. So this is a theological primer from uh, Kevin DeYoung that he had written for the Gospel Coalition um, a few years back, and I thought it was a good, succinct, uh, 500 word or less kind of summary of of limited atonement. So here's how he uh, explains it, the doctrine of limited atonement. The Ellen Tulip teaches that Christ effectively redeems from every people only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation. And that is a quote from the Canons of Dort, uh, Article 2, Section 8, from, um, what, 400 years ago. Uh, as Ursinus explains in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, Christ's death was for everyone as it respects the sufficiency of salvation which he made, but not as it respects the application thereof. In other words, Kevin Young says, the death of Christ was sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world, but it was God's will that it should effectively redeem those and only those who were chosen from eternity past and given to Christ by the Father. Uh, particular redemption is often considered a more favorable term because the point of the doctrine is not to limit the mercy of God, but to make clear that Jesus did not die in the place of every sinner on the earth, but for his particular people. Uh, and now he's going he's gonna to hit you with a lot of just back-to-back um, scriptural Quotes, the good shepherd lays down his life not for the goats, but for the sheep, John 10, 11. This is why John 6 says that Jesus came to save those the Father had given to him, and why Matthew 1, 21 says he died for his people. John 15, 13 says he died for his friends. Acts 20, 28 says he died for the church, and Ephesians 5, 25 says he died for his bride. And Ephesians 1.4 says he died for those chosen in Christ Jesus. Uh, so that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven places um, hmm. where the New Testament seems to clearly, de- clearly delineate 
those for whom Christ died as being particular, a particular group of people, namely the church, the redeemed. Uh, the doctrine of particular redemption is worth defining and defending because it gets to the heart of the gospel. Should we say Christ died so that sinners might come to him, or Christ died for sinners? Did Christ's work on the cross make it possible for sinners to come to God, or did Christ's work on the cross actually reconcile sinners to God? In other words, does the death of Jesus Christ make us savable, or does it make us saved? If the atonement is not particularly uh, and only for the sheep, then either we have universalism, Christ died in everyone's place and therefore everyone is saved, or we have something less than full substitution. Um, this is now a, a quote from the great Charles Spurgeon that uh, Kevin DeYoung pulls in. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ, Spurgeon says, because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all people, or all people would be saved. But, Spurgeon argued, it is the view of the atonement that says no one in particular was saved at the cross that actually limits Christ's death. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no one can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything other than saved. So that's uh, the end of uh, DeYoung's article. And I'll, I'll leave that as a maybe a overview, and we can dig into some of the, I guess, counterpoints and try and engage with those. But I want to give Thad a, a chance to jump in. See, all I, I yeah. wanted to do is really read somebody else's argument. I don't <laughs> need to add any of my own commentary. So anything on any of those points that Kevin Young brought up in his article that you want to uh, zoom in on? Uh, I think the first thing is uh, with particular redemption, using that as two-pip doesn't really roll off the tongue uh, as much as two-lip mm -hmm. does. Um, I think he, he brings up some, some great points uh, about what do we actually mean um, or what did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross. So that's where this actually, the question plays out of did Jesus die on the cross paying the price for all people? So all people are saved, pay the price for some people, therefore limiting others. Um, I think in this conversation, and um, it'll come up more as we discuss it, is that everyone limits at some point with the atonement. Mm -hmm. um, unless you're a universalist in that everyone will be saved. Uh, the question is, are we limiting to Jesus only died for select, elect people? Or is it that Jesus died making redemption available to some people mm -hmm. and coming across? And so I think entering that um, conversation helps us more. Um, as well, I'll just state this at the beginning. I think it's helpful to address that even among those who claim the title Calvinist, this particular one is the one where people wrestle with and try to redefine. And that's why you have people who say, I'm a four-pointer, I'm a five-pointer, depending what it is. But Calvin says what I think is very helpful. Outside of Christ, there is nothing worth knowing. And so really he gets to where we'll probably finish in that. It's all about Jesus, and that should be what drives us. And some of this 
uh, minor details defining words uh, is a little bit less important than actually magnifying who Christ is and what he does on the cross. Okay, I want I want to zoom in on one thing that you just said uh, that about this idea that everyone limits atonement in some way. Um, and I thought that was an interesting argument. So the other, the other site and source that we'll, we'll link for you in the show notes is um, uh, the, the uh, uh, website that I mentioned two weeks ago with read off of uh, for some of our definition of uh, TULIP and, and Calvinism in general was gotquestions.org, another one of my favorites um, for, for go-to resources for answering uh, Bible questions, gotquestions.org. But anyway, this is their uh, from their article on what is limited atonement and specifically on this question of, or this idea that everyone limits the atonement in some way. They, they put it this way, say, belief in an unlimited atonement uh, presents many logical and biblical problems. First of all, if the atonement was truly unlimited, then every person would be saved as uh, all of their sins, including the sin of unbelief, would have been paid for by Christ on the cross. However, such universalism is clearly unbiblical, as the Bible clearly teaches that not all people are saved or will be saved. Therefore, both the Arminian, and again, that language comes from follower of, uh, what was it? Not uh, just Jacob. Jacobus, that's right, thank you. Jacobus, uh, Arminius um, versus John Calvin back in the 17th century. So, therefore, both the Arminian and the Calvinist believe in some sort of limited atonement. The Arminian limits the effectiveness of the atonement in saying that Christ died for all people, but not all people will be saved. His view of the atonement limits its power as it, it only makes salvation a possibility and does not actually save anyone. On the other hand, the Calvinist limits the intent of the atonement uh, by stating that Christ's atonement was for specific people, the elect, and that it completely secured the salvation of those for whom Jesus died. So, all Christians believe in some sort of limited atonement. The question then is not whether the Bible teaches limited atonement, but how or in what sense the atonement is limited. Is the power of the atonement limited in that it only makes salvation a possibility, or is its power to save unlimited and it actually results in the salvation of those whom God intended to save, which are a limited number of people, the elect? Does God do the limiting or does man? Does God's sovereign grace and purpose dictate the ultimate success or failure of the redemptive work of Christ, or does the will of man decide whether God's intentions and purposes will be realized? And that, to me, is a powerful Great argument mm-hmm. for for um, this idea that we all believe in in some sort of a limited atonement. And gosh, if it's going to be limited in one or the other, I you know I take comfort in the idea that God's the one doing the limiting and that it's not certainly that it's and that's Calvin I think Calvin's point in this whole the bigger sort of picture question of of salvation and and how salvation works is I think Calvin's maybe summary would be to say you know praise God that it solely rests on his grace his um you know foreknowledge his election and not you know, on anything in me because I am so totally depraved that if it was up to me, you know, if, if the limitation for salvation was up to me, uh, there's no way I'd be included, you know? And so, um, 
and I think, you know, again, to, to answer some of these rhetorical questions at the end there, you know, does God do the limiting or does man, does God's sovereign grace and purpose dictate the ultimate success or does man's? I think you, you really don't have to go any farther than Romans 1. I mean, Ephesians, uh, sorry, Romans 9. Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. We talked about it two weeks ago with Calvinism in general, but if you read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and Romans 9, you know, the first 20 or so verses there, it's just very hard to, for me, to envision walking away from that thinking, yeah, it seems like man does the limiting. You know, there's, there's a couple of these text which we're going to have to deal with here in a minute, Thad, um, that, uh, that the Calvinist has to deal with, particularly on the point of, of limited atonement. Um, so maybe we can go there next. So there, there are some texts that we need to deal with, but you know, if you look at, you know, some of these, yeah. Um, the, the, certainly I, I think the whole thrust of, uh, the Bible's biblical theology and the view it presents of God. And again, how, just how sovereign is God and, mm-hmm. you know, just how, um, effective is God, uh, when it comes to, to things like, you know, the atonement. And, um, I, I think it's, it's very clear, especially from some of those powerful texts, you know, God predestining, working all things mm-hmm. together according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians one eleven, and then Romans nine, where, you know, Paul, Paul himself is wrestling with this clearly as he's writing, but he, he, then Paul channels, you know, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he channels, uh, God's, his inner sort of God centered theology. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, you know, you know, of course, yeah, we're, we wrestle with this in Romans nine, you know, this is my paraphrase of Paul's argument there, but with himself, but, but Paul says, you know, yeah, of course we wrestle with this. How, how could God choose some and not choose others? That's that's hard for us uh, to wrap our minds around. And Paul's response to that is is not, you know, to say to try and soften it and say, well, you know, maybe God doesn't really choose. You know, we have to, you know, be the ones to ultimately accept or reject Christ. No, Paul says his his counterpoint to that is just like what God Himself. Uh, how God himself stands up to Job at the end of the book of Job is uh, Paul, Paul's like, you know, thinking back to that. And Paul says, who are you, oh man, to, you know, to argue with God? You know, what is, what is the clay to say to the potter? You know, what are you doing, potter? You know, why did you make me for this use and, and the other person for this use? If God wants to make some people um, only to send them to hell and God wants to make other people, to elect him to heaven, that is God's prerogative. And that's, that's you know, the end of the book of Job, too, where mm-hmm. Job's like, oh, why would you let me suffer? And God says, you know, who are you to argue with me? My ways are higher than your ways, says the Lord, you know. Um, and so I think as, as much as that is hard, I, I think to me, other than these five or six texts that, that seem to maybe hint at a, a more universal or unlimited atonement, other than these texts we got to deal with, I think the only reason biblically, or, or you know, just for a Christian to be an Arminian, and, and the Arminians that I have had these kinds of arguments with, the only reason is just, you know, it just doesn't feel right. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it just doesn't feel right to say that God, you know, uh, would knowingly make some people not to choose him, not to be elect, and um, that, that, and, and to say, 
to say that Christ's blood uh, would not pay for some people. It, it seems like a limitation on Christ's blood. But I, again, I think the mm-hmm. point you made then, the point that getting redundant at this point, but like we're all limiting the atonement in some way. Mm-hmm. For you to say, you know, Christ's blood, you know, no, 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 you can't limit it. Christ's blood is powerful enough that, that you can't say it's only for some people. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be powerful enough for everybody. But then to say, but wait a minute, if it's powerful enough for everybody, then either everybody's saved, which it clearly doesn't teach, or um, you're saying that effectively that, you know, those people are more powerful. Their lack of faith is more powerful than Jesus's power of redemption. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that somehow they trump his redemptive power sure. because he, he, he wanted to pay for them. He tried to pay for them. He wants to cash a check that's for everybody, but somehow we have the power to reject that. So I think I think you know it's it's a little bit of a you, you got to pick your poison. But, mm-hmm. anyway. I good point. I had I had this thought in, in thinking through this uh, that Christ did not come to put mankind in a redeemable position, mm. but to actually redeem people. Right. That he didn't come to make it possible, but he actually came and accomplished what it is that he set forth to do. Right. Um, and I think we misunderstand the atonement if we argue over um, the extent of it more than exclaim the truth that Jesus died for undeserving sinners. Mm-hmm. That before thinking about even the extent of, well, who is it that Jesus actually died for? We should marvel at the fact that Jesus would humble himself to come to to the world to live among sinners and yet he is so kind and merciful to people like us who are sinful and merciless Mm -hmm. that's good all right so maybe we should deal with some of these texts look at those texts yeah let's do um like what what would you say to the listener who and i think i saw that on your list first john 2 2 Mm -hmm. for example And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Mm -hmm. Maybe start with that one. Yep, that's the that's the number that's the first one on my list here. Again, just compiled from the Got Questions article on it. Uh, Let's just lump them all together. So you got First John two two, propitiation for the sins of the whole world. John four forty two, Jesus called the Savior of the whole world. John 1.29, John the Baptist's famous declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. All this world language. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.14, He died for all. 1 Timothy 2.6, He gave himself a ransom for all. Okay, so now we got world language, we've got all language. Um, and even in presenting the, the sort of case for unlimited atonement, um, the, the author of this particular article, couldn't help himself but put in the parenthetical here on the ransom language, Matthew 20, 28 and Mark 10, 45 both say that Christ came to give his life a ransom for many. <laughs> so you've got 1st Timothy 2, 6, gave himself a ransom for all, but then you got some others say gave himself a ransom for many. Again, you know, with this whole sure. propitiate, even the 1st John 2, 2, propitiation for the whole world. Well, we can go back and look at Isaiah 53. You know, that, like Isaiah 53, even in the Old Testament, is probably the clearest 
um, articulation of the idea of substitutionary atonement, the vicarious sacrifice of Jesus. Um, and so you're thinking about, who, okay, who is that propitiation? Who is that sacrifice for? You know, if it's a Jesus's sins in our place, who's the our? Is it everybody? Is it just some people? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and even if you zoom in on the Isaiah 53 passage, you've got that language over and over again of he will die for the, the, the transgressions of the many. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he offer himself a sacrifice for the many. There's a lot of many language in contrast to all or the world. So, you know, the Bible seems to, you know, again, you're not, we're not trying to highlight contradictions here by any means and obviously the bible doesn't contradict itself but we got to square both those things right we got to square the the many and the ransom of many transgressions of the many with some of this all language um one other that came to mind john 3 16 and 17 god so loved the world he gave his only son whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life in 17 Mm -hmm. for god did not send his son into the world Mm -hmm. to condemn the world but nor that the that the world might be saved through him. So That's right. I'll just add that. Just yep. one more in there. Thank mm-hmm. you. Well, I'll add two more. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, says the Lord, all the ends of the earth. Second hmm. Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how, do you, how do you square this idea? You know, Ezekiel 33, 11. Um, I cut it from my notes for sake of conciseness, but, uh, you know, Ezekiel 33, 11 is the one where, you know, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I don't delight in the death of anyone, not, not even the wicked. You know, I don't, I don't delight in the death, the death of the wicked, but that the wicked might turn from his sins, repent and, and come to me. So how do you square this? Not only, you know, there's the theological concern. Again, there's a bigger theological thing. God's telling us, I don't like it when wicked people die and without repentance and reject me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I wish, 2 Peter 3, 9, that all would perish. You know, 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all would be saved. So how do you deal? There's a theological thing. God wants everyone to be saved. God wants... Uh, no one to die, God, you know, and that's maybe another podcast issue on sort of the the uh, effectual will of God versus the part three. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we'll, we'll go in an even more in depth on two different types of wills of God, you know, uh, and, and how the whole analogy of you know, I want a donut right now, but I also am not going to have a donut just because I want it because there are something you know. Sometimes you're. <laughs> You, you, there's a different part of your kind of brain that kicks in and, and trumps that, you know, sort of guttural, like, oh, I want everyone to be safe. I want a donut. But, you know, it's not best that I have a donut right now. And maybe in some way, in God's providence, it's not best that everyone would be saved. Obviously, it's not because God always does what's best and everyone's not saved. So, um, but to bring it back to these texts, all right, First John 2, 2, John 4, 4 42, all the ones well, you already mentioned, here's what, I'll just read this, and then, Thad, you and I can engage with it. But here's here's how, um, again, I, I should have looked up exactly. I don't think they always list who the author is for, for each of these articles. But they got questions, guys uh, and gals. Uh, Those who believe in unlimited atonement use such verses 
to make the point that if Christ died for all, takes away the sins of the whole world, then his atonement cannot be limited to only the elect. However, these verses are easily reconciled. <laughs> easily. <laughs> they say easily. I want to be reconciled. I want to feel the weight of, I, I don't know how easy it is, but easily reconciled with the many other verses that support the doctrine of limited atonement, some of which we've already looked at, simply by recognizing that often the Bible uses the words uh, world or all in a limited sense. They do not automatically mean, quote, every individual in the entire world. This is evident when just a few verses are considered. Luke 2, 1, it's recorded that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Uh, Luke 2, 3, so all the world went out to be registered each to his own city. But clearly, it is not talking about every individual in the whole world. Caesar's decree did not apply to the Japanese, Chinese, or countless other people throughout the world. Um, similarly, the Pharisees, being dismayed at Jesus' growing popularity, said, look how the whole world has gone after him. Did every single person in the world follow Jesus? Or was the, quote, world limited to certain people within a small area of Palestine in which Jesus preached? So, uh, that's that's their kind of explanation of that, and um, you know I guess that that uh, suits me. I, again, I, I don't want to so quote easily write off the the unlimited atonement text and and, and sort of argument to be made there. Um, I'm not sure if I you know it's quite so easily written off for me, but I I do think that uh, when you look at the whole weight of the, the biblical evidence, uh, this idea of particular redemption, limited atonement, whatever you want to call it, arose by any other name, but uh, that that there does seem to be the weight of not only the biblical, um, explicit biblical text and, and arguments for it, but also just the, the, the theological, you know, I don't know that you, I don't know that you really can be a four-point Calvinist. You know, I don't know that the way my understanding of it, again, very limited, not a professing theologian, but any more than anybody else is, but they all kind of stand together. They stand or fall together. You know, you're, it's, it's kind of like you're, a, it's kind of like you're a five pointer or you're, you're not a Calvinist at all. Um, so mm -hmm. they, they seem to all pretty much go hand in hand to me. I, I, uh, you know, they, they, they build one upon the other. So I don't know that any, any more help you can be in maybe these texts in particular with, you know, the whole world ransom for all these kinds of language. I think one, one aspect that could also address some of that world language, um, is, is how does Jesus's death fit into the cosmos as a whole? Mm. That we read in uh, Revelation 21.5 that I have made all things new. And when we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth, that world is the new world that Jesus has created, which will be filled with mm. those particular peoples who he has redeemed um, but I, I think as the article pointed out as well and as you brought attention to that all how world and all is used on the flip side of that is you still has to have to use 
the verses that talk about a limiting factor in that as well. Even talking about how Jesus came for all people, and yet Matthew 121, uh, speaking to Mary that she will give birth to a son, and he will save his people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who is his people? Mm-hmm. I, I think other places in the scriptures... Mm-hmm that you can look to help think through um, how it is that we think of all is the universal, all of all types of people, mm-hmm. not all people, everyone, mm-hmm. but all different types, like uh, all nations, all nations, all tribes, all, all tribes. Uh, and, and thinking through like, no, it is not just to the Jew mm-hmm. and not just to the Greek and not just to the slave and not just to the free, but right. all types of yeah that's good those those are both really helpful distinctions i thought as you're talking about revelation 21 romans 8 as well paul talks about you know all of creation groaning for redemption and how yeah same thing jesus is going to redeem not just the elect but all of creation it's all like you said going to be made new and so even when you get that world language is he necessarily talking about all the world people versus like all the all the planet, you know, mm-hmm. all the universe, the cosmos, like you said. So that's that's helpful too. I'm glad you. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, but yeah, man, these, mm. you know, for the for the six texts in First John two two, John four forty two, John one twenty nine, all those that we read, Second Corinthians five fourteen, First Timothy two six. You know, you've you've also got the ones that De Young read for us. The good mm-hmm. shepherd lays down his life not for the goats but the sheep. That's a good point. Jesus came to save those the Father gave him. Matthew one twenty one. Die for his people. Die for his friends. John fifteen thirteen. For the church. Acts twenty twenty eight. For his bride. Ephesians five twenty one. You know those chosen in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Ephesians one four. So I mean, you can go back and forth. You know I can proof text one text with your your text. And so at the end of the day, we got to try and fit this together. And so to me, it it does. It seems like that's the best way to to fit it together but um i don't know if maybe a a good place to end it again is to to try and maybe bring it back to at the end of the day you know this to me is it's a very important issue i mean how we i don't want to i don't want to take away from that you know how we understand the nature of jesus's salvation is a very important issue you know so much so that um you know, I, I think it's appropriate for, for churches to even make sure that, for instance, the leaders of the church, mm. you know, the pastors, the elders of the church are of the same mind on these kinds of issues. Um, because otherwise you, you really could get into, um, you know, it's, it's, it's clearly a, a second tier issue. Not, maybe not a first tier, but not a third tier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, this is more important. And I heard me preach the sermon last year, last fall, about our statement of faith. And we don't have anything per se about Calvinism. That was two weeks ago question. We don't have anything about limited atonement in our statement of faith. But I, to me, how you understand something like this, limited atonement, salvation, you know, exactly what Jesus accomplished in his death, that that is closer to gospel basic uh first tier first order issues than how we understand baptism for me personally sure. you know mm-hmm. certainly it's mode fun. of baptism sprinkle dunk who cares whatever i you know i don't want to that's another podcast but uh i i just I, so i don't want to take anything away from the importance and yet at the same time 
I, I would balance it by saying it is second tier. And if we have people at West Hills who I hope will listen to this podcast, and um, I hope everyone will be convinced. Uh, praise God. But if if they're not, if we have those who, who listen and they're still not convinced, like, yeah, you know what? I, I think I, I'm still going with the unlimited atonement, sins of the whole world, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure that you hear me saying and us saying, you are still welcome at West Hills. We are not going to be one of those yeah. churches that that draws our sandbox so so tightly that you know there's not room for the 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 Armenian or mm-hmm. the cessationist or you know the the dispensationalist or you know whoever that we may or may not uh, agree with on on these second tier types of issues. So I'm glad that we have. Uh, you know, folks at West Hills to be able to to even sometimes argue it's fun and, and and hash this stuff out with. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm glad that we that our unity in Christ is bigger than you know our our second tier you know positions that we that we hold to and um, that we can we we can trust that one day you know we all only know in part and mm-hmm. one day we'll know yes. in full. And, you know, one day we'll probably all laugh at ourselves when we get to heaven and realize just how much mm-hmm. we had wrong in our theology. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And I, I think one other objection that someone might raise about limited atonement uh, is the caricature that, well, then you don't need to share the gospel with anyone. If it's limited and we don't, we don't know who those people are, why do we even bother if God is going to just save those people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my response to that is... We do not know who it is that God will save, but Jesus leaves us the explicit command to go and make disciples and share the gospel. And if anything, Calvinism, doctrines of grace, reformed theology, whatever label you want to put on it, it is meant to humble us and give us a greater view of who God is, that he would do any such work of redemption in our hearts. And that should be the motivating factor for us to be even more evangelistic because we don't know who those people are or who or what God is going to do. Romans 10, how are they going to believe if they don't know? How are they going to know if they don't hear? How are they going to hear if we don't preach? So, I mean, that's all the counter argument you need there, I think, again, regardless of your yeah, I, I I think you're absolutely right. Um, we're not called we're not called to know. Um, we're called to preach, and God's called to God's called to call. God's not called to do anything. God God's the one who does the calling. Uh, but God, yeah, God calls. Uh, we are called to to preach. So so good. Any final thoughts as we wrap up here? I was particularly helped by that thought that not all references to world and all actually meant the whole world and all. Mm-hmm. So something that would be helpful for me is just dig a little bit deeper on, on these particular references mm-hmm. to these words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that would be helpful for mm-hmm. me. Also that thought of everyone limits atonement was mm-hmm. an interesting thought as well that I'd never considered. Both sides limit atonement in, in some sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was, it's been a really helpful conversation for, for me. Well, hopefully it's been helpful uh, for you, our listener, as well. That's it for this week's episode of Ask the Pastors. Remember that you can submit your questions by visiting the info bar at West Hills or by asking them online through our website at www.westhillsstl.org. Well, if you enjoyed this week's episode, feel free to hit that like button and share it with a friend. 
And don't forget to tune in again next week as we address the question, should Christians celebrate Halloween? Thanks so much for listening.